Turn please to Philippians in chapter 1. I want to read verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. Upon finding that, uh, please pray with me. Father in heaven, We come to your word and pray that you would enable us to see it, to understand it, to grab a hold of it, that it would dig deep within our souls and do that for which you've purposed it. And I pray that it would be your purpose on this day to bring grace to us and to help us in our time of need to focus our attention rightly upon Christ as we not only ought, but we must. And so I pray, Father, that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, Paul, in these verses, is being very self-disclosing. He isn't telling us a great deal about his circumstances, but he's disclosing, really, what's going on within him. That is to say, he's sharing with us, he's disclosing to us his heart, his attitude towards what's going on. Uh, with it, around him. It, presumably, the church in Philippi understands his situation. They sent Epaphroditus to him with a gift, so they knew who, where he was, that is in Rome, no doubt, in prison. And uh, he's going to send Epaphroditus back with this letter so he can fill him in on any of the details of Paul's life. So he doesn't tell him a great deal other than he is in prison, but he does reveal what's going on in his heart. And I must confess to you that as I read through Philippians, uh, as I do each day now, and you can do that too, by the way, it only takes 10 minutes to read through Philippians out loud. So, if you've progressed to the point in your reading where you can actually read quietly to yourself without moving your lips, you can probably do it more rapidly than that. So it's not a great deal of time to take. So you can read through Philippians probably every day, even if you're in some other Bible reading program, which I trust you are, but you should be able to read through Philippians quickly and grab something there from it and have it grab something uh, in you. But as I read it, I must confess that it's increasingly I desire to have the attitude about life that Paul had. And I realize that's one of his intentions, that I should come to that point. For instance, in chapter 3 and verse 17, he writes, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That is to say, he says, I want you to imitate me. I want you to see what I'm doing and how I'm living. And I want you to follow my example. Then again in chapter 4, in verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so as I read this, I keep thinking, yes, I want to be not like Mike, but I want to be like Paul. I want to have this attitude that he had, and then I realized the reason that that's so attractive, in part, is because that's the very attitude of Christ. 
that Paul has observed Christ, Paul has gone to Christ, and Paul has seen this attitude, and now he's living it out, and he's saying, well, here's the attitude of Christ, so watch me, and it will help you learn on how to live it and what it really is. And so I find myself in, in that regard, desiring to have this attitude about life, because we see Paul finds himself in rather difficult circumstances. And yet, even in the midst of the difficult circumstances, he seems to live with a great deal of confidence. He still seems to live with a great deal of purpose. He still seems to live with a tremendous amount of peace. In fact, the way he describes it is simply the word joy. That is, he's able, even in the midst of all this, to continue to rejoice. And I find that being in good circumstances is never a guarantee for peace. It's never a guarantee for joy. Because if you've lived more than a minute with your eyes open, you realize that circumstances can change in a heartbeat. Or even the absence of a heartbeat. And thus we find all kinds of things happening in the context of life which change circumstances. And if our lives, contentment, peace, joy, whatever, is contingent upon our circumstances, then we find that our lives will be a roller coaster, we'll just be up and down all the time. But it appears as if Paul is able to live in some particular way with an attitude that enables him to, to not live above the circumstances. People are living above the circumstances, we wonder what they're on. He's living in the midst of the circumstances, right in the middle of the circumstances, not denying the circumstances, understanding the difficulty of the circumstances, but still in the midst of that, having a great deal of confidence, having a great deal of purpose, having peace, and a tremendous joy in the midst of that. That's what's so attracting. And so the question is, how does he do that? We see that he is indeed in difficult circumstances. Verses 12 through 14 uh, reveal to us again that he's in prison. And as we said, it's most likely that he's in prison in Rome. And so he's in prison in Rome. And he gets to Rome in a rather odd sort of way. God had promised him, you can read this in the book of Acts, God had promised him that he would in fact testify of Christ in Rome. Now if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, okay, I'll stay at the Hilton and I'll preach at the arena, you know, or I'll preach in a nice sort of... But he gets to Rome in prison. And that's from which he preaches, from prison. Not only that, there are some who, while Paul is in prison, are preaching in such a way as to make his life very, very difficult. Now, interestingly, they're still preaching Christ. If they weren't preaching the truth about the gospel, Paul would, have, would, have, would not have good things to say about him. Uh, what he said about people who weren't preaching the real gospel, we can find in Galatians 1.8, uh, where he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And so in this situation, uh, Paul isn't saying that they should be accursed. Paul is still rejoicing because the gospel is still being preached. That is to say, they're preaching the true gospel. They're preaching that Jesus is the very Son of God, preaching that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of sinners, that the only way to be accepted by God is through faith in Christ. They're preaching all the right things about Christ, but they're doing it in such a way, it appears, that it is making Paul's life very difficult as they're rubbing a salt in this wound while he's in prison. And we don't know exactly what they're doing. could be something like, oh yes, Paul is a great guy, good preacher, fine apostle, 
But you know, if he was just a little bit smarter, he wouldn't always be in prison. Or maybe, maybe he's, he's, maybe he's just missing the will of God a bit. And so he's always ending up in, in prison. Great guy, good apostle, but... And so all along, you see, as they're preaching the gospel, it makes it more difficult for Paul. His reputation is being smudged because of them. But still, that doesn't take away Paul's joy. Two very difficult circumstances. One in prison, and I suspect if somebody would come to Paul and say, hey, Paul, you're free to go, he'd say, good, that's good, I'll leave prison. But if he stays in prison, his joy is not diminished. And I'm sure somebody came to Paul and said, Paul, you know, we've talked to all those people that are preaching out of envy and rivalry, the ones that are envious of your position and, and, and see themselves as your rival in some sense. And we've talked to them, they're not going to do that anymore. I'm sure Paul would go, oh, that's good. But even if that doesn't happen, and even if they keep preaching in that regard, still, Paul's joy isn't diminished. And we wonder, how? How could that be true? And if it is true, how can we grab a hold of that? Well, as I read through this, I think the way that Paul can live this way is because he is a gospel-centered, gospel-driven man. That is to say, his whole life revolves around the gospel. Even his relationship with the people in Philippi revolves around the gospel. Notice in chapter 1 and verse 5, whoops, excuse me, chapter 1 verse 5, he says this, he says, well, let me begin verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, remem- always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That is to say, Paul understands his relationship with the people in Philippi as a partnership. And it's a partnership in the gospel. That little word, partnership, is, is our little word, the Greek little word, many of us know, koinonia. Uh, we think about it in terms of having a cup of coffee with somebody or sitting quietly and relaxing and praying or having a little small group Bible study. Paul views it as a mission. Paul says, we're united together in the mission of the gospel. We're partners together. We're sharing in this interest. And we have a, a purpose together for our fellowship. It kind of reminds me of when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And he says, I've determined to know nothing about you except Christ and him crucified. Now, that doesn't mean Paul didn't know their names. It doesn't mean he didn't know uh, what little league team the various little boys played on or any of that sort of thing. He knew stuff about them. But he said, what unites us together, what draws us together, what is the topic of our conversation, uh, what is uh, the very uh, thread that binds us is the gospel. We both believe it. And that's our very heartbeat. And you know, I began to think about that. And I began to wonder what our partnership really is. You know, in America, and especially in American churches, we have a number of what we call affinity groups. And you can have an affinity group with, with, with people, by definition, who are like you. You know, by way of marital status, culture, education, job, um, Whatever. Children, no children, those kinds of affinity groups. And we're drawn to people like us. And that's fine. There's good fun in that. It's helpful. It can be encouraging. But for Paul, you see, what drew him to them was not things that were like him in a variety of ways. In fact, he had affinity, though a Jew, for Gentiles. People very different than himself. 
But all of those boundaries could be crossed because of the gospel. Because they believed the same thing. They were drawn by the same one. And their partnership was in the gospel. You get the, the sense that when he was around these people, he talked about Jesus a lot. I, I, I talk about the royals a lot. See, We talk about our children a lot. But the question is, we talk about them in the context of the gospel. Do we talk about them and do we talk about the affairs of our lives as the gospel affects it? I wonder. But he goes on, and then he says in verse 7, he says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Now, the first thing I trust that comes to mind as a Christian when you hear that someone else with you is a partaker of grace, you're thinking of the grace that saves you as well you should be. That God's grace has come to you, changed your heart, enabled you to trust in Christ, and thus you were partakers together of his grace and that's true but when Paul says this to the church in Philippi he puts a different spin on it turn to chapter 1 verse 29 he says for it has been I'll let you get there for it has been granted to you in my version some of you may have given to you but really it could very well be translated graced to you it's the same word that he same root word that he uses in chapter 1 verse 7 it's the word grace. And he's been graced. You notice then what they're partakers of in this grace. He said, It has been grace to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him. Okay, we get that. We should believe in him. Same grace. But not only that, but this. should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. See, the very circumstances of their lives as they suffer together is partaking in the grace of the gospel. Because the gospel not only brings to them belief, but it also brings to them this identity with Christ, which puts them on the outs of their culture, which causes them then together in this spiritual foxhole to struggle, to be persecuted, to suffer. So he says we're fellow, we're partners in the gospel, we're partakers of this grace that enables us to believe and suffer together for the sake of Christ. So this is their partnership in the gospel. And then the way that Paul understands that partnership in the gospel that's to believe and to suffer is, that, is this, he goes on to say, I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says, our very lives, having received this grace to believe and to suffer, our very lives now are characterized by this vocation that we are to defend and confirm the gospel. Thus, we defend it against its critics, but our very lives confirm its truth. Some of you grew up in rather liturgical churches where you went through something called a confirmation class. And when you were confirmed, the meaning of that was to be that the truth was found in your life. Your life confirmed was a confirmation of the truth of the gospel. And so that was a time when, depending on your particular tradition, you could take communion, join the church. I don't know, fly. But, but, that, uh, but, but that was the deal. I went through confirmation class. We put our kids through. We don't call it that anymore. We call it Grace 101 for kids. But it's confirmation class. This is the truth of the gospel uh, in you is, is really what we're after. And uh, 
And so confirmation. And so he says, we live now to defend and confirm it. We defend against our critics, as Peter says, that we should always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us, to, to tell people why we have this hope in us. But also, our very lives should confirm the truth of the gospel. So now here's Paul, gospel-centered, gospel-driven man, finding himself in prison, salt being rubbed in this wound by those who are preaching out of envy and rivalry. How does he do it? How does he handle it? And still say, I rejoice. I think because the prayer that he had prayed for them was being answered in his own life. For he prayed for them that their love would abound more and more with knowledge. And you see, Paul's love had abounded more and more with the knowledge of the gospel. Paul knew the gospel. And so Paul's life was informed by the gospel. And so the gospel was what drove him to react the way that he did. Because you see, in knowing the gospel, it was amazing that in the midst of all of this, Paul didn't complain. I mean, think about it. God had come to him and said, Paul, you're going to testify of me in Rome. Cool. But he ends up in prison. I would think, God, somewhere along the line, a wire got crossed, something got switched. I'm supposed to have a pulpit somewhere. I'm supposed to have a big audience. The best I can do is these Roman guards that I'm attached to day in and day out. Is, is that what you mean? That can't be what you mean by preaching the gospel. Isn't there an... But that's not what he thought, you see. He never grumbled. He never complained in the context of the circumstances. Why? Because the gospel... Well, what did the gospel tell him in that context? The gospel told him in that context, first and foremost, that he was loved by God. The gospel tells us that. As a believer in Christ, you should never doubt, quite frankly, I know we struggle with this and I'm not trying to pick on you and make you feel guilty if you do, but really, we understand, we shouldn't doubt the love of God because it's already been proven to us in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the guts of the gospel. In the cross, we should look at the cross and as a believer, the first thing that should come to our minds is that God is glorious and that His love is great. Why? Because of the cross. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and that He gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And you see, the logic of that love in Paul's mind is expressed over and over. For instance, in Romans, in chapter 8, Paul thinks of it like this. In Romans 8, verse 32, he writes, He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So Paul's thinking, I know the gospel. My, my love has abounded with knowledge, the knowledge of the gospel. And I know because I know the gospel that God loves me. And I know that because he loves me, and I know he loves me because of the cross. And I find myself in prison. But God loves me. Thus, this must be the right place for me to be. Because you see, God didn't spare his own son. And if he wouldn't spare his own son, that huge thing, then we'll only handle all the details. And so, if he can take care of that, is my being in prison some sort of mistake? 
Now, Paul would reason through it, the very logic of the gospel. God loves me. I'm in prison. This must be the place for me. He thinks on from Romans 8, verse 38, For I'm sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Our Lord, he said, I know that he loves me, so this must be, this must be the place for me. I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think of Jesus knowing the very love of his Father at that moment in time, and yet struggling like any man would be struggling who's going to face what Jesus is about to face. And so he goes to his father and he says, if there's any other way, any other way at all, then make this cup pass from me. But then the cup doesn't pass. And so what does the scripture say about the Lord Jesus? It says, for the joy then that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That is to say, he embraced with joy his circumstance of the cross because he knew that his father loved him. And he knew that if his father loved him, his father would take away the cross if that wasn't necessary. If that wasn't the best way. And so now, Paul in prison, knowing the gospel, knowing thus that God loves him, finds himself in prison. Should he grumble? Should he complain? Or should with joy he embrace the circumstance? A gospel-driven man embraced the circumstance. And he embraced it knowing something else too about the gospel. If you look in, in Philippians 3 and verse uh, 20. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await to Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables uh, him even to subject all things to himself. See, Paul understood that he was a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and he understood there that the glorious, that the king, would be the one, is the one who has the power to subject all things to himself, even prison guards, even rulers that cast you into prison. So Paul understood that. And not only that, he understood that as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that there was a king to whom he was to submit. And he knew that it wasn't all about him, but in fact it was all about Christ. And thus he would submit to this one who loved him, who was the king, even in this particular circumstance. But you see, as a gospel-driven man then, it enabled Paul to awaken to the advancement of the gospel. He says, all right, I'm in this new circumstance, I'm in this new difficult situation, how will the gospel be advanced? And amazingly, he says that the gospel then reached the whole praetorian, the whole imperial guard. Now that may not seem like too big a deal to us, but there were generally about 9,000 men in the imperial guard. And you say, well, Paul, how did you do that? How did you reach 9,000 of them? Did you get to talk to 9,000 different soldiers? No. He was attached to a couple at a time, usually during the course of the day, chained to them so that he could have some freedom but couldn't leave the place he was. But as he talked to them, they talked to others. And in the midst of that, while not complaining, but advancing the gospel, he confirmed the truth of the gospel in the lives of the imperial guard. Because you see, his love had abounded more and more with knowledge. 
And he says, what's important here is the gospel. And so I will love these men by telling them the gospel. And then they told others, there's this crazy man we've got chained up. He's not complaining. He's not bitter. He's not angry. In fact, he's nice. And he's telling us about God. He's telling us about Jesus. And one by one, two by two, how many by how many, the word spread. And Paul then looked back and said, prison is the place to be. And not only that, he said this in verse 14. And he said, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's saying, look, people are watching me all the time, and I know that. People are looking at me, and as I am able... To, 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 to live in this context and advance the gospel, now they're becoming more bold to share that themselves. That's a confirmation of a verse in, in Psalm 119. I came across this 15 years ago, strikingly. 119, Psalm 119, verse 74. The psalmist writes, and the psalmist is going through some very difficult times, And he writes, those who fear you, that is, those who trust in God, those who fear you shall see me, that is, see me in my difficult times, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. You say, that's not very nice. Here he is going through difficult times, and people look upon him and rejoice. Why would they do that? He goes on to say, because I've hoped in your word. Do you know our greatest fear? is that a circumstance will come upon us that will be so great that we'll lose faith. And what's encouraging then is to look upon people in difficult times who are believers, who are maintaining faith. And we see, oh yes, it is true. God does preserve us. God does supply strength. God does help us. This is really true. I mean, I look at people who are successful and having a nice day and saying they believe in Jesus and I go, okay. Everybody believes in Jesus on a nice day. But the point is, what do you do when you're in prison? What do you do when your circumstances have changed and they're really horrible? Do you maintain faith? When you do, you're a great help, great hope to the rest of us. And so Paul looks because he's a gospel-centered man. He says, new circumstance, new situation. How can I advance the gospel here? How can I promote Christ I don't have to worry about being loved because God does love me. I know that for sure. This is no accident. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to complain to Him. I have to be bitter about these things. And so how do I advance the gospel in the midst of this? How do I defend it? How do I confirm it with my very life? I confirm its truth by not complaining. I confirm the truth by continuing to love. I confirm the truth by continuing, even in the midst of this circumstance, to tell other people of the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. And so that's what He does. And then others watch that and boom. The gospel spreads. But not only that, he's in this other circumstance that I find, and this shows you something about my own insecurities, but I find probably even worse than being in prison. And that is, while he's in prison, his own reputation is being damaged by those who who should be his friends, by those who should love him, by those who should honor him, and all those kinds of things. Yet those very ones are damaging Paul's reputation. But you see, Paul looks upon that and, and, and he thinks because he's a man who has prayed this prayer that he prayed for them in verses 9 through 11, that his love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment that is wisdom. 
so that he would be able to approve that which is excellent. He would see what's really right, what's really essential, what's really necessary, what's really important, and he would gather his life around that. And so he looks at the situation and he says, Christ is being preached. My reputation is being diminished. What's wrong with that? Because he's able to approve what's excellent. He really, his love is abounded. So what he cares about those people is not that they love Paul, but they love Christ. Not that they know more and more about Paul that impresses them, but they know more and more about Christ that impresses them. And he looks at the situation and he says, okay, they're not so impressed with me, even though it's not true what they're saying. They're not so impressed with me, but they're getting impressed with Christ. So I, that's good. So my joy isn't diminished, even though my reputation is. Because he was able to approve that which is excellent. Paul in his own life. And though you see for us, circumstances change all the time. But as gospel-driven people, as gospel-centered people, in each new change of circumstance, in each new change of situation, rather than grumble, rather than complain, rather than be bitter against God, which is not to say we can't ask God to have our circumstances change. Remember, Paul had a thorn in the flesh and three times he went to him and he said, this is painful. Could you take this away? Could you take this away? Could you take this away? And it became clear to Paul that God wasn't going to take it away. And he lived, therefore, as he would have before, on the grace of God. But you see, as these things stay with us, as these circumstances come rather than complain, rather than grumble, to with joy think, how can I defend and confirm the gospel in this situation now? With what I'm confronting right now, whether it's a personal loss, whether it's an illness, whether it's the threat of death to me or someone I love, whether it's a business failure, even a moral failure, whether it's an injustice that we see against us, or we see committed against others, how is it now? Can I defend and prove that the gospel is true in this new circumstance? I remember one time a number of years ago, Karen and I went to an R.C. Sproul conference, and there were about 1,500 people there. And um, to show how we approach things differently, I walked into this room thinking, oh good, nobody knows me here. She walked into the room thinking, oh good, 1,500 new friends. I get a sense that Paul, in the midst of a change of circumstance, looked and says, ah, a way to advance the gospel. All of a sudden, in this new surrounding, this new circumstance, this new situation, I'm around people in a different context. Thus, it provides me another opportunity to defend and to prove the gospel. And see, when circumstances change in our lives, it may be that... that, that that we're around the same people, but in the context of a different circumstance. A neighbor finds out that someone in their family is tragically ill. You've known this neighbor because they're neighbors for years, but now a new circumstance. How then can I now defend and confirm the gospel in a way I had not this opportunity before? A friend has a difficulty. How can you defend and confirm the gospel now in this new circumstance, this new situation. 
You find yourself uprooted for some reason in another place. You find yourself fighting an injustice over here. You find yourself, how then, in this new circumstance, do I defend and prove the gospel? That's a gospel-driven, Christ-centered person. And that's a person then who, in a sense, sees themselves in the background and Christ at the forefront. Sees their own agenda in the background. Sees the agenda of God for the gospel in the forefront. And that's a person then, in any circumstance, in any situation, can be satisfied. In any circumstance, in any situation, can be content. In any circumstance, in any situation, can have peace. In any situation, in any circumstance, can have joy. Because the concern is the gospel. That's why, as I began this book, Philippians, and I came across again that prayer in verses 9 through 11. I said, that's what I want in me. That's what I pray for you. Because I want to be a gospel-centered man. I want to be a Christ-centered person. And for that to be, then our love must abound more and more with the knowledge of the gospel. To make us wise with all discernment. So that we may live for the day of Christ. So we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, that is my, I trust, our heart's desire that you would answer that prayer. And thus I pray on this day that you would fill us with a knowledge of the gospel, that it would be clear to us who Jesus is, the very Son of God, that it would be clear to us what Jesus did that is, voluntarily left his throne, as we say, in glory and humbled himself as a man, taking the very nature of a servant and was obedient even to death, death on a cross. And that death on the cross was that very action which took upon himself the sin of sinners so that all who would trust in him would have eternal life that we believe and know that he was raised from the dead, that we believe and know that he ascended into heaven, that we believe and and we know that he rules and reigns from there and intercedes for us. And a day will come when he will return. And upon his return, he will receive us unto himself, all those who believe. Father, we pray that we would know this gospel and know, therefore, that we're loved by you. Know that you're the very sovereign God of the universe. Know that you're concerned about our every circumstance. And thus we needn't complain, we needn't grumble. Because we know that we're loved. And Father, I pray that therefore our love would grow with that kind of knowledge. To know not only that we're loved, but to know that this gospel is the only means through which anyone can be accepted by you. Saved. And so, Father, we pray that this would be true in us, that our love would abound with all knowledge and discernment and that we would have confidence, that we would have purpose 
that we would have peace and be filled with joy as we defend and prove the gospel. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. I remind you of our time together this evening. So please come, 7 o'clock. Be blessed by our kids and bless them. Um, Wednesday evening, 6 o'clock dinner. Please come. Women, sign up for the women's retreat. And I remind you too about this prayer. It's dangerous, this prayer. But I urge you to pray it. This isn't a mantra. This isn't some formula. But I pray that God works it deep in your soul as you pray it for yourself and for us. Elders are available to pray. Please remember that. To pray for our missionaries as they head off Saturday to Mexico. The response to the benediction is praise be to God. Amen. I don't know your circumstance. Some I do. But I don't know the details, obviously, of your lives. But I trust you know the gospel. I trust thus that you know you're loved by God in the midst of that circumstance. And while you may wish that circumstance to be different, you're willing, by the grace of God, as a partaker of his grace, to embrace it with joy. Hoping, trusting, praying that you'll be able to defend with your life and prove the gospel in the midst of that circumstance. If that's true of you, the response to our benediction is praise be to God. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To our only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, whom be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, praise be to God. Amen.